All right, I want to welcome everyone this morning. We come now in our worship of the Lord together to the preaching of God's Word. And if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to pray and we're going to ask for God's help for this time that we're about to spend in God's Word. So please pray with me earnestly. Let's pray. Lord, we come now to you. Lord, when we come to your word, we intend to come to you, God. For your word is no empty word. It's your word. God breathed from heaven. And you are so worthy, Lord, of our worship today and our obedience today, Lord. Lord, and we stand in such need of your help, Lord. There is nothing that pleases you that can be accomplished in human strength. This morning, as we come to your word, we need you, Holy Spirit. We need you to understand the scriptures rightly. Lord, we need you to care about the things that we should care about. About obeying you sincerely, Lord. So God, we ask for your help today. We ask that your word would not just be an idea that we consider this morning, but that you would unleash your powerful word in our midst. That you would make it accomplish what you intend it to, it to accomplish in our life, Lord. Be the living God. This morning, as we come to your living word, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount the past couple of months now as a local church, Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. And we want to make sure that we get it right. I mean, that's really important. If we're going to spend several months. In the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached, we want to make sure that we get it right. And so I want to take a step back for just a moment. I want to remind us all of two broad principles that we have to understand if we want to get the Sermon on the Mount right. If we want to get it right, we got to understand that these broad principles are at play all across Matthew 5. Through Matthew 7. Specifically, there's something being demanded and there's something being assumed in the Sermon on the Mount. There's a demand and an assumption. There is a practical righteousness that is being demanded by Jesus Christ to his hearers. There's something being demanded by Jesus that we would live in a certain way. But there's also something important that's being assumed in the Sermon on the Mount. And what's being assumed by Jesus Christ as He addresses His hearers is that a supernatural conversion has taken place in the audience that He is addressing. The Sermon on the Mount is not opposed to the Gospel. It's very important that we understand this. That it's not 
opposed to what the whole Bible tells us about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Those who are addressed in the Sermon on the Mount are already assumed to be Christians. You say, how do you know? Sermon on the Mount itself tells us this. So think about this. We have this one simple word, Father, and that word is used 15 times in these three chapters of Scripture. And all 15 of those examples are those whom Jesus is speaking to are those who know God as their Father in heaven. There's something being assumed as Jesus addresses his audience in Matthew 5 through 7. This being assumed that they've been transformed by the grace of God, that God is now their Father who is in heaven. We have 15 examples of this. But here's just one in Matthew 6, verse 8. Jesus says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. And so he is assuming that he is talking to Christians in this sermon. And it's so important that you understand this order. That you receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ before you ever have any chance of obeying the commandments of Jesus Christ. You have to be a Christian before you can live the Christian life. The way Paul says it is that faith has to come before deeds. Faith has to come before works of obedience. But the way Jesus says it in this sermon is that the tree has to be made good before it can bear good fruit. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 17. Jesus says, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. And that assumption is so important because if you reverse that order... If you get that order wrong, it's so important that you will damn your soul. You will damn your soul if you don't understand that principle. In other words, if you know yourself to be a diseased, bad tree, and what you think is, man, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to be about these red letters, and I'm about to obey Jesus, and I'm going to obey the Sermon on the Mount. And if I do that, God will accept me. Reversing the order here will damn your soul. God's word to the unconverted man or woman is not obey the Sermon on the Mount and everything will be fine. God's word to the unconverted is come to Jesus Christ and live forever. Come to Christ and live forever. We just sang the power of the cross. We just sang that, that song of adoration to Jesus Christ. And one of the things that we said was we, we adored this moment where our Savior bore the awesome weight of sin. The awesome weight of our sin. Think about how wrong it is. Side by side with the bloody 
cross of Jesus Christ to think that we could present our obedience to the Sermon on the Mount as the basis of our right standing before God. No, we must receive the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. There's an assumption being made of a transformation, the powerful work of the grace of God in the hearers that Jesus is addressing. So I don't want us to ever forget this, that the one who ascended the mount and preached the most famous sermon that ever was is the same Jesus that was lifted up on the cross to die in our place and for our sins. Jesus is not a hard master. He's not a hard master. He's not like Pharaoh that commands us to make bricks, but he says you can't have any straw. Jesus is a wonderful Savior. He came into the world to save sinners. The same one speaking these words is the only one who came to save us from our sins. And so I want to remind you of that this morning. I don't want you to spend 5, 10, 15, 20 years in a church thinking, I'll just obey. I just want to obey and do what's right. I want, I want you to face this fact that you have to be a Christian to live the Christian life. You have to be a Christian to, Christ, to live the Christian life. And it is only Jesus, only Jesus that can make you a good tree. Only Jesus Christ can make you a good tree. He came to do more than you pray a prayer. He came to make you a new creation. And He's the only one that can do it. And you need to come to Him. You need to repent of your sins and come to Jesus Christ. Only good trees bear good fruit. And only new creations can obey the Sermon on the Mount. Important principle as we spend many weeks in Matthew 5 through 7. And then we must remember that Jesus in these chapters is demanding a practical righteousness. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean that Jesus is not saying this. He's saying, I have this impossible standard that you will never meet, so stop trying. Jesus is not doing that in the Sermon on the Mount. He is demanding a practical lifestyle of righteousness. In fact, in Matthew 5.20, he tells us that unless our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, we will never enter heaven. He is demanding a lifestyle from us. And the Sermon on the Mount is a call to respond. In fact, in Matthew 7, at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, I believe it's verse 24, Jesus says... The one who hears the Sermon on the Mount and obeys the Sermon on the Mount is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And so he is calling us to respond with a lifestyle of practical righteousness. And nowhere in all the Sermon on the Mount did the demands get greater than this final portion of Matthew 5, where Jesus begins to address us about our love for our enemies. And so let's read our text together this morning. Matthew 5, verse 30, beginning in verse 38. This is the Word of God. 
Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is God's word to this local church this morning. And we want to submit ourselves to it. We want to understand it, and we want to obey our Lord Jesus. And so what do we have Again, we find ourselves, you've you've heard this many times in, in recent weeks, we find ourselves with Jesus dealing with the law of Moses and the Pharisees' interpretation of the law of Moses. And specifically, Jesus quotes that phrase, an eye for an eye. And that phrase is found three times in the law of Moses. I have these references on your study guide. You can go back and look at these later in Exodus 21. In Leviticus 24 and Deuteronomy 19, three places that phrase shows up, an eye for an eye. And what that phrase means is it's a shorthand legal description of a principle of equity that was given to Israel's judges. When they rendered punishment for crimes, there was a principle that that punishment should fit, should match the crime. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life. It was equity. When crimes were punished, they should be punished justly with equity. In other words, if somebody's tooth got knocked out, the principle of equity is not to kill that person, but eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. This principle shows up in many different legal codes outside the Bible. In fact, one of the oldest writings that we have is called the Code of Hammurabi. And this phrase shows up there, the eye for an eye, this principle of equity. And then later in Roman culture, this principle was referred to as the Lex Talionis. The Lex Talionis means the law of retaliation. And this is what Jesus is dealing with In this passage, this law of retaliation, this principle of judicial equity. Now, most people who are somewhat familiar with the Bible, they've heard that phrase before. Eye for an eye. I just want to mention this quickly, and this is something that you can go back and dig into later. A lot of people are less aware that the first time that that phrase shows up in the Bible in Exodus 21... It's in the context of dealing with the legal rights, listen, of unborn children. It is is direct revelation from God about what God and His Word say about babies in the womb. It's an amazing thing that the first place in all the Bible that that phrase, that principle of equity shows up is in the context of legal protections for the unborn. Eye for eye, 
and life for life. And this flies in flat contradiction with uh, our, our ab- abortion-obsessed culture that frames, frames it up exactly backwards as reproductive rights instead of exactly what it is. It's the murder of a living person, an image-bearer of God. God's Word makes no distinction between unborn children and born children. God's Word says, I for I, life for life. They're image bearers of God. They're persons created in the image of God. And even under Old Testament law, they were given legal protection because they're image bearers of God. So we have this principle of equity. I'd encourage you to go back and look at that passage in Exodus 21, 22 to 24. Now, what did this do in Israel? I for an eye, what did it do? Well, you could say it did two things, and both are important. It had a double effect. It served as a guide for justice. In other words, it put rails, just rails, around judicial sentences. It was a guide for justice. Uh, we already mentioned this, but it's not uh, um, life for an eye, it's eye for an eye. The punishment has to fit the crime. And so it served as a guide for justice. But think about this, and even more important for our passage this morning, is that it restrained personal revenge. In other words, if somebody did you or your family wrong, this this principle was given to the judges in Israel to render the punishment. And in this way, as Israel's judges carried out their job, it prevented from generational uh, blood feuds. Think about probably the most famous example of this in, our, in America is the Hatfields and the McCoys. You do me wrong, I'll do you wrong back. You kill one of mine, I'll kill one of yours. Well, this principle rightly understood with justice in the hands of magistrates and judges, it prevented personal revenge. And so how did the Pharisees get this wrong? And we get this from the context. Everything that we've been seeing so far, Jesus is dealing here not with the law of Moses, but with how the Pharisees had uh, distorted it. And so how did they distort it? They weaponized eye for an eye for the purposes of personal revenge. Or you could say it like this. They extended... The eye for an eye principle beyond the law courts and into the realm of personal relationships. In other words, they interpreted Moses' command, eye for an eye, that they could take justice and vengeance into their own hands. Now, back up. The Old Testament itself forbids what they were doing. We don't have to wait till we get to the New Testament for God's word to speak against vengeance and revenge. The Old Testament itself forbids what they were doing. Listen to Leviticus 19 verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 22 Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and He will deliver you. 
Proverbs 24, verse 29. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. And so think about how evil uh, what they were doing was. By weaponizing this principle of eye for an eye, they took the very law of God that was meant to prevent personal revenge, the very same law that was meant to prevent it, and they used it to ground their personal revenge. They used it to justify taking vengeance into their own hands. And this is exactly what Jesus confronts in verse 39 when Jesus Christ says, But I say to you, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And so with those words, Jesus lays down his radical righteous demand. Do not resist the one who is evil. Now, what can we learn from that phrase? Just take a step back. Just 30,000 foot view. This, this is at least a reminder of this. That according to Jesus, this is a reminder that the Christian life is not just supposed to be lived out in some sinless vacuum. Some Christian version of Mayberry. Where nothing bad ever happens. Nobody ever opposes you. As he's laying down the law of the kingdom and the standard of righteousness, Jesus is reminding us that a righteous life, a Christian life, is meant to be lived out in the presence of evil people who come at us and treat us unjustly. It's a reminder that do not resist the one who is evil is that there are going to be those who are evil that you cannot resist if you're going to obey Jesus Christ. This is His law of non-retaliation. And as we just read a moment ago, He's restoring the right interpretation of the Old Testament. Jesus is not commanding anything in these words that the Old Testament didn't already command. He's refusing His disciples to take vengeance into their own hand. And so think about this. If you want to know your real character, what you're really like, then you don't put yourself in a moral vacuum, right? If you want to know your real character, one of the ways how it's going to be revealed is how you respond when somebody who is evil treats you Unjustly, It's going to reveal something about you. And this is where we're coming in the Sermon on the Mount to that contrast between the church and the world. They're so different that one's light, one's darkness. And that contrast gets so sharp and so distinct with how Christians respond when they're treated unjustly and how the world responds when it's treated unjustly. Christians stand in stark contrast to the world and our character is revealed in these situations where we are treated unjustly. Jesus gives us four scenarios here that illustrate his commandment. We're going to walk through each of these this morning. In verse 39, 
He tells us that if you are slapped on the cheek, Jesus says, turn the other also. Turn the other also. Now, this is more about being insulted than it is about being physically hurt. Jesus doesn't say, if you are smashed on the head with a rock, he doesn't say that. He says, if you are slapped on specifically the right cheek. And so what's happening in this illustration is Jesus is telling us that if someone takes their hand and rears back with their right hand and they strike you on the right cheek, this is a backhanded insult. Okay? And some things, you don't have to know much about Greco-Roman culture to know that's offensive. It's offensive to us. It's offensive to them. This is, this is an insult. This is, uh, if, I mean, if you want to provoke someone, you can go and shove them and that'd be a provocation. But if you want to take it even further, if you backhand slap another person, you're asking for a response. This is an insult. It's meant to provoke and even to humiliate. And with his call for us to turn the other cheek, Jesus is challenging our sinful desire to defend our own honor. In other words, he's, he's getting at something in us that when we're slapped, that, that, that gut reaction of you ain't about to slap me like that. He's putting his, his authoritative kingly finger right there where, where he knows our sin exerts itself. He's calling us to never repay evil with evil. This is his law of non-retaliation. He knows us. Jesus knows our sinful heart. He knows the way that we think. When I'm hit, I'm going to strike back. You touch me, I'm going to get my pound of flesh. Even if I have to wait to get it, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get you back for what you did. And he calls his disciples to a different path. He says, turn the other cheek. Second illustration is found in verse 40. He says, if you are sued for your tunic, give your cloak also. Now, I understand this to be a scenario where you are sued for a legitimate offense. Just like earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, back in verse 25. That you have done something wrong, that you owe somebody something, and you are being sued for a legitimate offense. I don't think Jesus is saying here, somebody sues you because you don't have pink hair, give them your house and all your cars. I don't think that's what the text is teaching us. I think the assumption here is you've done something wrong or you owe someone a debt. And this is what Jesus is speaking to. According to Old Testament law, uh, uh, Exodus 20, 21, uh, the, the judicial punishment could never be to take your cloak. It was forbidden, uh, according to Old Testament law, that your cloak could be taken from you. If you owed somebody money, they could take the shirt off your back. 
Um, but your cloak doubled as a blanket at night. And, and for a poor man, the cloak was needed for his survival to protect him from the elements. And we have even texts that speak, if you do take someone's cloak, you've got to give it back to them before sundown and then take it back from them the next day. It was needed for survival. And so what Jesus is calling us to here is that there are legal limits that are in place that can't be touched by this judicial verdict for you to pay back what you owe. Jesus says, go beyond that. Someone who can't take your cloak, they can take your tunic. Jesus says, give them your cloak also. And with this command, he's putting his finger and challenging our sinful desires to assert our rights. Even our legal rights, that we would pound the table, my rights, the law says, my rights. He's putting his finger right there. And he's exerting his authority. Third illustration, verse 41. If you are forced to go a mile, Jesus says, go two miles. Now this was an example that happened a lot in Jesus' day. The Romans occupied Israel. Israel was under Roman domination. And one of the things that that meant was a Roman soldier who were scattered all across Israel could stop you at any moment and conscript you. It's like being drafted on the spot. And they could say, carry this burden. Pick up those rocks, pick up the water, pick up the grain and carry it over here. Conscription. Happened all the time. In fact, at the end of the Gospels, uh, we find an example of this in a man named Simon of Cyrene. As Jesus was carrying his cross out of the city and up the hill to Golgotha. You remember this? That there was a man singled out from the crowd that, that was made to carry the cross of Jesus Christ. It was an example of this. And there was something in Roman law that permitted these soldiers to do this for a variety of different reasons, but they couldn't make you go any further than one mile. That was the limits of their authority. And Jesus says, go with them too. If they command you to go one mile, go with them too. And so again, we see Jesus calling his disciples to go beyond the limits of the law. Go beyond. Go above the limits of the law. He's touching the heart with these commandments. And he's challenging, listen, our disposition toward those in authority over us. Our unwillingness to obey those in authority over us. And remember, all of these examples that Jesus is giving us is not the good and nice but the one who is evil, Jesus says, do not retaliate. Do not resist them. Even if you think their laws are stupid, like that law, that's a, that's a dumb law, right? That, that a soldier could just tell you to pick up anything and carry it a mile. Jesus says, carry it too. Last example in verse 42. Last illustration. Jesus says, if you are asked for something, give it. If you are asked for something, give it. And this commandment here challenges our love for ourself and our stuff. And that's the root behind why we find it hard to be open-handed with those who are in need. 
He says, if you are asked for something, give it. Now, I want to spend some time before we dig further into these commandments. And it's really one commandment illustrated in these four ways. I want to spend some time talking about what this commandment is not. I want us to understand what is not being said by Jesus Christ. And then we'll come to what is being said. What the demand calls us to. And I got six of these. Six of these knots. And this is not everything that can be said. But I think these are important. So what is it not? First, this is not a commandment for states and governments and judges. This is not... Jesus' word to nation states and judges. In other words, if Afghanistan gets bombed by Pakistan, Jesus doesn't say, turn the other cheek. That is not what, these are not commandments for nation states, governments, and judges. This is not Jesus' command to the judges in our nation that if somebody murders one of your citizens, turn the other cheek. Okay? If you want to know what God's word says about government, this is not the place to go. Okay? There are clear places in the Bible where God speaks about human government. And one of the clearest places is Romans 13. Romans 13. So think about how much trouble you would get in if your check engine light comes on in your car. And you know you need some, uh, some oil in your car. So you take out the owner's manual to your car and you flip to the section about transmissions. Okay? And you're reading transmissions, but your problem is with the engine. You're going to come to the wrong conclusion because you're in the wrong place in the book. And so that same principle applies here. You're in the wrong place in the book when you're thinking about God's word to human Governments. These are not commandments for states. Number two, the illustrations that Jesus gives, those four are not exhaustive of all the ways that this commandment applies to us. And, and there's something sinful in us, right, that, that, um, that reads those examples by Jesus like a moral code. Like, okay, haven't been slapped, haven't been sued. Haven't been conscripted by a Roman soldier. Nobody asked me for, for anything this week. So I must be fine. You know, that, these, these illustrations don't exhaust uh, all the ways. This principle touches us in hundreds of ways of what Jesus is calling us to here. This heart of non-retaliation, not striking back. So these are not exhaustive. Number three. These commands are not absolutes for every circumstance. And this is where we have to be careful. Uh, sometimes a mishandling of the Bible can, can seem to be a really virtuous thing. You know, like I do it because it says it. See, it says right there, turn the other cheek. See, it says it, I do it. Wooden, literal, the Bible says it, I do it. But these are not absolutes for every circumstance. And one of the things that Christians believe about the Bible is that it never contradicts itself. In other words, God doesn't speak in one way over here and then in a, in a contradictory way over here. And so if we interpret these commands 
in such a way that directly contradicts other places in the Bible. We know we got it wrong. We know we got it wrong. Obedience to, to this command of Jesus does not stand in opposition to other things in Scripture that command us to defend the helpless, to practice church discipline. One of the ways historically that this has been hijacked and misunderstood is that Jesus Christ teaches passivism in this text. He does not. There are other places in the Bible, Romans 13, that tells us that the state bears the sword this is a reference not only to just war, but also to capital punishment. Can't interpret this text in a way that would lead you to contradict the clear teaching of other verses in Scripture. As we step back and we think about all the different circumstances, one of the things that we have to understand is that sometimes non-resistance is not the best way to love our neighbor. Sometimes. You say, what do you mean by this? Well, Mark 11, verse 15. Jesus Christ, love incarnate, the one who never sinned, picked up a whip of cords, and he starts swinging around, physically clearing the temple of Yahweh. Sometimes, non-resistance is not the best way to love your neighbor. Are these moral absolutes for every circumstance? Are they? Should we always turn the other cheek? Think about this. What if a seven-year-old slaps his mother? Should she turn the other cheek? Think about it. What if someone stabs you? Does this text command you to give them a second opportunity? What is Jesus calling us to here? Should we give to those who ask us in every situation? No matter what, are they moral absolutes, full stop, no nuance? What if somebody asks you for a loaded pistol? A total stranger for a loaded pistol. Does this text obligate you to give it to them if you have it? Surely we understand that what people need is not always what people ask for. And love requires us to give what is needed, not always what is asked for. So I hope you understand the challenge that we have here this morning. And it's a challenge. I mean that. That on the one hand, we don't want to take this any more absolute than Jesus Christ meant it. We don't. We don't want to get it wrong. But on the other hand, as we understand it rightly, we don't want the commandment to lose its radical impact that Jesus wants it to have. It's so otherworldly. world doesn't know anything like this. So these are not absolutes for every circumstance. Number four, these commandments are not meant to be weaponized by other people. What I mean by this is the, the purpose of these commandments is not so that an abusive husband can demand that his victim wife turn the other cheek. They're not given for that reason. That's a gross distortion of this commandment. They're not to be weaponized. They're not to be used by a, a manipulator 
who walks around just imposing his will upon other people. And when you don't do what he says, he says, by the way, Jesus says you're supposed to go two miles. I'm not even asking you to go one mile. That's, that, they're not to be weaponized by manipulators. Number five, they're not about natural temperament. And we do this, and, it, and, it, and it's fine to a certain degree that we think about people's personalities. And one of the things that, that can describe a certain personality is, man, they're so easygoing. You just, it's like duck off, uh, water off a duck's back. They're so easygoing. That is not what Jesus is calling us to here. It's not a natural temperament that only some people have. This is a demand that he places on every follower of Jesus. And not only natural temperament, it's also not just a cultural thing. You ever seen sin played off in that way? Somebody who's aggressive, assertive, quick to strike back. And they say, oh, well, in my culture, this is just what we do. You mean in your culture you sin too? Like these demands are for every follower of Jesus Christ. Not just your natural temperament. Not just what culture that you come from. They're supernatural works of the Spirit of God in the hearts of Christians. Number six. These commands are not about weakness. And I remember my own grandfather... My own grandfather, a man who I love like my own dad, uh, he probably is the most morally upstanding unbeliever that I've ever met. I love him. I truly do. But he hates Jesus Christ. He refuses to follow Jesus Christ. And it's, surprising, it's so surprising to me that when he opened the Bible and explained to me why he will never be a Christian, is he stuck his finger right here. On Jesus' command in Matthew 5. About turning the other cheek. About not rendering evil in place of evil. And he said, I'll never do that. Absolute foolishness to me. So he's, so he's moral and virtuous up to a certain degree. But he couldn't get over it. He stumbled over these radical demands of Jesus Christ. To not strike back. To restrain yourself. But these commands are not about weakness. And Jesus is not calling us to be doormats who don't oppose evil in any way. This, this is not a command to weakness. Christians don't ignore evil and that's not what the command here is calling us to do. The command here is calling us to renounce revenge. And that's not weakness, that's strength. I love Proverbs 16. Of how it speaks to this idea of real strength. What's real strength? Real power? What's real strong? It says this. Proverbs 16, 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. So think about that. When we think about, man, what's real strong? One of the ways you can think about that is SEAL Team 6. Who do we send in when a, when a city needs to be taken? We send in the special forces to get the job done. And that's strength in a certain sense. But the Bible says this is better and this is real strength. 
when you rule your spirit, when you are slow to anger, you're better than the mighty. You're better than the one who could take a whole city. This is strength as God says it. This is strength according to Jesus Christ. It's not weakness. So enough about what the commandment is not. Those are important qualifiers here. But we have to come full circle and realize that Jesus is calling for real obedience here. Real obedience. Not just an idea that, yeah, if I'm ever in a situation where someone you know, backhands me, probably 98% of us will never be in that situation Jesus is calling you to obey in hundreds of situations like this. Will we respond to evil with evil? This is a call to live like Jesus Christ. This is is what it looks like for the blessed of the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is what it looks like to live in the meekness of Jesus Christ That when you're reviled, you don't revile back. When evil is done to you, you don't return it with evil. And so we are all of us this morning. We ought to examine ourselves by his standards, by his standards, not just by our own, not just in our moral vacuum, but by his standard. And so how do you respond? Make it personal this morning. How do you respond when others treat you wrongly? When you're thinking about your character and what kind of man or woman you really are, think about how helpful this diagnostic question is where Jesus puts his finger right here. How do you respond when you are treated unjustly? After all those qualifiers that we just did, after all the nuance, do you obey this text? Do you obey your Lord Jesus when he says, do not resist the one who is evil or do you find yourself just like the world somebody hits you and you hit them back is there a contrast in your life light and darkness or have the lines been blurred and there's no difference than you and the world that worldly mindset don't tread on me don't tread on me you want it? Come take it. I dare you. How many times you heard this? All around us. You want it? Come take it. Doesn't sound like Jesus. You know who it sounds like? It sounds like a man named Lamech in Genesis chapter 4, beating his chest, this bloodthirsty man of vengeance. It doesn't sound like Jesus Christ. Are you a sensitive and easily offended person? Think about how hard of a time you're going to have to obey this text if you are easily offended. I mean, Jesus is saying if you're backhanded. But think about if this is true of you, think about all the triggers that set you off that aren't even close to being backhanded. You're not going to obey this text if you're an easily offended person. If you're so sensitive that you're triggered By every little thing, this is not the way of Jesus Christ. How do you handle insults? What do you do when it feels like you did get backhanded? How do you respond? 
Is it lash out and let them have it? I'm about to give somebody a piece of my mind. Is that you? How do you respond? What is your posture to our government and its laws? Defy the tyrant? Stick it to the man? Or happy to comply? Which one? Which one? Do the bare minimum or go above and beyond what is required? Man, one of the things that we have to be really careful of in America is that the values of the culture aren't smuggled into the church. And we live in a culture that has sinful views of authority in hundreds of different ways. And you need to make sure that it has not infected you. What is your posture to the government? Defy the stupid law? I only obey the laws as a Christian that I agree with. If I agree with it, I obey it. If I don't agree with it, I don't. Is that what Jesus calls us to here? Is that what he calls us to here? When you refuse to give, is it really, is it really out of a love and concern for that person and what they truly need? Or, if you were honest, is it because you love your comfortable life? And because of love of self, you find your heart numb to real suffering and real need all around you. I hope you see the common thread here. If you want to obey this commandment of Jesus Christ, you must die to yourself. You must die to yourself. And this is the call of the gospel. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, you know what he said, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Following Jesus Christ is supposed to feel like you have a cross on your back. That you are dying to yourself. That you are taking up suffering. That you are walking in the path of Jesus. We have to die to our pride. We have to die to our demanding spirit. We have to die to our desire to strike back. We have to die to our desire to do the bare minimum of what is required. And as we step back and examine ourselves, we're going to find two realities. Somebody's on the throne. Somebody's ruling in your heart. And it's either yourself or it's Jesus Christ. It's either self or Christ. And self-love, that's the world. That's that rotten, dark world that we're supposed to be lighting up and and the salt of the earth. The world is ruled by a love of self. But self-love doesn't rule Christians. There's another power at work in Christians. Christ rules Christians. And we need to be reminded as believers of what we signed up for. This is what we signed up for. To call Jesus Lord. To submit to Him as King. To follow Him in all of His commandments. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. And follow me, Jesus says. Now I want you to notice how this command presses hard against some of American values. Okay? Now, 
I want to I want to say this. I think that our I'm not I'm not I'm not holistically critiquing our form of government. There is much uh, to be celebrated and thankful to God for for our form of government. I don't know any other form of government on planet Earth right now that I would prefer to live under. I don't. But think about how true these things are. It ain't perfect. It ain't perfect. How hard does Jesus' command press against our American values? Think about how, how much speech you hear all around us in our culture about my rights. My rights. What belongs to me. And if you, you can split this off in two ways. The political right, it comes out in the form of my freedoms. With this liberty principle. My freedoms. Don't tread on me. And the political left, it comes out in the form of my rights. And this justice worldview of justice and freedom. Don't tread on me. It's all over American culture. All over. And when these are violated, left or right, the culture has one gear. One lever to pull. And that lever is called retaliation. You strike me, I will strike you back. On, the right says own the libs, the left says own the conservatives. Hit me, I'll hit you back twice as hard. It's the world that we live in. One lever, one gear. Jesus is reminding us that Christians have another gear. And that gear is do not resist the one who is evil. Now, as a follower of Jesus, how is that applying to you? As someone's observing your life, where are they going to find obedience to this text of Scripture in your life? Where you die to yourself, your rights, your freedoms, your liberty, and you, and, and you trust God. Where is it? Is it theoretical only? Are you living it out? Are you living it out as a follower of Jesus? Do you even have this gear? Do not resist the one who is evil. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that Jesus in this passage, I love this phrase, that he calls us to a visible participation in the cross. Are you despising that? When the providence of God brings you this opportunity where you walk in the way of the cross. Are you following him there? Are you following him there? In this way, Christians are stark contrast to the world. Romans 12 says it this way. This is a commentary from the Apostle Paul on this passage of Scripture. He says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, to live peaceably with all, beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is His standard. This is the standard of His kingdom. And as I close, I want to remind us that this Jesus who is laying out this demand, He expects this of us. I want to remind us that this Jesus is not a hard master. He's not. He's our loving Lord. He loves us. He washes us from our sins with His own blood. He loves His people. 
He is not a hard master. And Jesus lived this standard. We had that phrase that we use sometimes, practice what you preach. Jesus did that. Jesus didn't call you to something that he didn't live out perfectly. Listen to it. In 1 Peter 2, 22, he committed no sin. And neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Brothers and sisters, that was for us. That restraint from the Holy Son of God, that was for us. For us, for our salvation, when Jesus was reviled, He did not strike back. The one with all authority. Think about it. He tells us in the Gospels. He says, I could call down thousands of angels and end this thing in a millisecond. But He restrained Himself and chose the way of the cross. And aren't you glad this morning that He did? Aren't you glad this morning that when he was struck, that he didn't retaliate? When he was reviled, he chose the way of the cross, the sinless suffering of Jesus Christ. And this is what he calls us to, to go do likewise. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. Let's ask for God's help as we close. Lord, we come to You today and we thank You for Your Word. And Lord, we want to express to You today that Your rules are right. Your commandments are wise. Lord, they search us out. They reveal sin in our hearts. And Lord, we find ourselves today as your church. Lord, we want to be like you. We want to be conformed to your image. God, please visit the preaching of your word today. God, arrest our attention with your word. Call us into obedience to Jesus Christ. And fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we need your help, God. We desire to be that stark contrast to the world. For your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.